Hello, hello. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Rock Fellowship. We're glad you could join us um, today for worship, whether you're joining us as a part of our online audience or whether you're able to make it out on this rather uh, dreary December Portland day. We're glad you could be part of our community together as we worship together on this Sabbath afternoon. And again, um, we were pretty close call to not being in here and being in a potentially cold and dark fellowship hall as of what happened this morning. Um, if you were last week, we actually started our annual kind of Christmas series, as is our tradition at this church. Um, it's called the Four Advent Words. And in this four-part series, we're going to be looking at four words that are commonly associated with this Advent season and with the birth of Jesus. Um, but if you notice, last week we shared a couple of the words, and none of the words are actually in English. So it creates a little bit of suspense. We're going to go down through each of these words and talk about how these words have relevance in our lives. And if you were here last week, Pastor Chris kind of mentioned this. Um, while this is kind of, sort of, our Christmas series in the sense that it's happening in December, really you could listen to the series sometime in July or June, which is probably closer to when Jesus was actually born anyways, and it would still just hold as much relevant in your life. And just a quick recap for anyone that may have missed part one of our series on this past week. Last week, Pastor Chris kicked things off by talking about the word shalom. And the word shalom is the Hebrew word that is most commonly translated as the word peace. But we talked about the nuances and the differences between shalom and peace is this idea that at its fundamental value, sure, they're kind of synonymous, but peace, at the way we use it in English, is most commonly understood as a lack of conflict. When we talk about, I want world peace, I want my house to just have peace, we're talking about a lack of war, a lack of conflict, or a house without fighting and yelling. That's what peace is as we understand it. On the flip side, the word shalom, at least as used in scripture, is actually the opposite of that. It's not so much about a lack of something, a lack of conflict, it's the presence of wholeness. It's the presence of completeness. And we talked about how when you look at those two definitions side by side, you realize that fundamentally peace and shalom are different things because then it becomes possible to have a lack of conflict, a lack of tension, a lack of stress, yet still not have completeness and wholeness and shalom. And if you're wondering how that works, we invite you to join, uh, log on to our uh, podcast platform at Rock Fellowship and look at part one of our series. All of our sermons and past series are there as well. Um, so a bulk of this series is really us going through and pointing out these nuanced differences between this Hebrew word, this biblical word, versus the English word that we use today and our understanding of it, and pointing out the important differences that are kind of lost in translation, for instance, between peace and shalom. And I don't know about how many of you guys um, know or did this in high school, but many of us, at least in, high, in California for me growing up, it was a requirement that you had to take a foreign language and growing up, and for me, Foreign languages um, were probably the worst subjects I had in high school growing up. And it was unfortunate because, I don't know if you guys know this, um, if you study theology at a collegiate level, um, the bulk of your classes are in studying foreign languages, in Greek and Hebrew. Um, and unfortunately, those are dead languages on top of that. And I remember when I took those classes in college, I absolutely hated Greek and Hebrew. Those are my words. They're always the earliest class in the day. There were five days a week. You show up, and I'm like, you have to memorize hundreds, sometimes thousands of words, and conjugate all these different verbs. And I'm like, nobody speaks this language anyway. All of this is online for free. Like, why are you making me learn this? I had the roughest time with Hebrew and Greek. But even more unfortunately for me, um, that struggle started for me much, much earlier in high school, in my sophomore year in high school, I took the most difficult class I've taken to date. Um, and the class was called was Spanish Two Honors. 
I mean, it's expansion honors. And right now, you're like, oh, did you really have to include the honors part? You're try, really trying to be pretentious on the pulpit. Let me assure you that this illustration, that this story is not a flattering one. You're not going to walk out of this sermon and be like, dang, Pastor Jonathan is so smart. You're going to walk out of this sermon in this illustration and be like, I have some questions for this kid. Like, I, I want to know where he comes from. Uh, but my sophomore year in high school, as was a requirement, I took Spanish too. And I took the honors version of the class. But to set some backstory for this, my freshman year of high school, I just took a regular Spanish, intro to Spanish one class. And I was really close with my teacher and I had a lot of friends. And it was a fun class, but I didn't kill it. I did all right. I got, an, I think, like an A first semester and like a borderline A, maybe a B second semester. And so I was technically eligible to take the honors level class next year. And I was talking to my, my teacher, and we were pretty close. And I was like, Senora, like, what do you think? And she was like, dude, just take the regular class, man. Spanish 2 honors is like, she's like, I know the teacher. We're friends. It's a tough class. And just the way she said it, I was like, you know what? Just because of that, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take Spanish 2 honors. And I took that class. And to this date, between, granted, high school, junior high, and the, all the classes I took in college, that was the hardest class I've ever taken in my life. And I don't know how many of you guys took Spanish or speak Spanish, but I distinctly remember, like, about halfway through the year, we started learning about, like, past tense, and there are two different types of past tense. There's, like, preterite and imperfect, and I, like, she lost me. The minute that happened, I was like, I can't do this. I have no idea what we're doing. I don't know what these words mean. And I just got destroyed in the class. And on top of that, the teacher didn't really like me. We had some beef. It was just a recipe for the worst possible academic experience I could have. Which led me to the end of the school year, maybe a month before finals, where I'm sure a lot of students can relate to this. What I started with, a group of my friends got together and we looked at the rest of the class. We looked at all the possible assignments, all the total possible points, the points that have been used, and we started calculating, okay, what do I need to get for these next assignments, and what is the max possible score I can get, what is the most likely grade I'm going to get? And I don't remember the exact number, but I ran the numbers, and as I was running the numbers, I was like, yo, if I ace every single assignment from now forward, get 100% on every test, ace the final, and she gives me like 30 extra credit points, I think I can get an A in this class. And the minute I said that out loud, my friends started dying. They're like, oh, so you're not, you're not going to get an A in this class. And it hit me like, I'm not getting an A in this class. And again, this is Spanish 2 honors. And the reason that's an important detail is because in my school, um, we had a weighted academic system. And what that meant was if you took an honors, an AP, or an IB class, your grade point average was out of a 5.0 instead of a 4.0, which basically just means if you got a B in Spanish 2 honors, it's the equivalent of getting an A in regular Spanish, which is an important detail that comes later. So I was sitting at like a C in this class with, a, with, with about a month left. And I'm not like, not a borderline C, like a, sol a rock solid C. Like I was like right in the middle there. And I realized it hit me, I'm not gonna get an A in this class. And it was in this like, and like when you get that realization, like it's just like, oh, this despair and disappointment was like, wow, what is my mom gonna say? That's crazy. Like what am I gonna, I can't believe this is Spanish. Like this shouldn't be that hard. And I was running through it and I ran through all the possible scenarios. I was like, okay. Well, maybe if I try really hard, I can bust out. I can probably get a B in this class. And you know what? It is what it is. We'll move on. But towards maybe two weeks left in the school year, my friend came, who was also in the class in a very similar boat. He might have had a lower grade than me, actually. He, he, came up to me, he came up to me and shared some news with me that in my mind was too good to be true. But I was in such a desperate place, I was going to take anything at this point. And he told me this. He's like, yo, I don't know if you know this, but school policy is if you fail a class, 
you can retake it in the summer, and that grade will replace the current grade you got during the school year. And I was like, what? No way. Like, yeah, dude, all you have to do is fail the class. If you pass this class, if you get a C or higher, you can't retake it because you technically passed the class. But if you fail the class, the school has to give you the option of retaking that class. And if you take it in that same summer, it'll replace your grade on your report card. And I was like, dude, that's amazing. And because of like where I was mentally and emotionally, I didn't ask a counselor, I didn't talk to my Spanish teacher, I just, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna fail this class then. And so for the next two weeks, I calculated, because I didn't want to accidentally pass this class. So again, I had a rock solid C. I had to, I had to really work hard, like, I gotta fail this class, right? And so I'm like missing homework assignments, and the teacher's like, what are you doing? I'm like, don't worry about it. You don't know the grand plan I have right now. I was the first one done with my final. I was done in like 10 minutes. I was like, I'm done. And she's like, what? And I was like, don't worry about it. And at this point, she's like, this kid is, this kid is, he's gone off the edge, right? And again, I didn't talk to any, I didn't ask anyone, I didn't double check this guy. He wasn't some like, he was my age. He hadn't done this before either. He was like, my friend, he was also failing this class, so also obviously not the brightest kid at the school. And all, the only reason I was like, I just need to know that I can get out of this situation and I can save myself. And so I clung on to this. And summer, and summer rolled around, I finished the final, and I got a D in the class, and I was like, yes. And so now, I have to explain to my mom, right? She's like, you got a D? I'm like, but you don't understand. It's actually an A. And like, what you don't understand, mom, is that I'm actually like, I can retake it. I'm explaining this all to her. And she's like, I said it so confidently that she was like, oh, okay, well, then make it happen. I was like, I already did, right? So I signed up. And what I realized, the minute school ended and the minute I talked to my counselor, again, who had, I didn't talk to her about this. I announced this to her. I said, I just failed my Spanish class. I'm going to need to retake it. And she's like, well, there's some things you should know. And she told me the first thing that I found out very early on was A, Spanish two honors was not offered in the summer, and it also was not offered at my high school. B, I had to go to a different high school, take regular Spanish, and what that meant for me was that even if I got an A in that regular Spanish, it'd be the same thing as getting a B in Spanish two honors. So technically, I didn't have to retake this class. The best grade I could possibly get would have been a B anyways in the equivalent of the class. And on top of that, my friend, who told me he was gonna do this with me, couldn't do it with me. He took it on a different time frame. So I was walking into a class in a different school, potentially not knowing anyone. And on top of that, what he failed to clarify was that D doesn't just disappear off your transcript. It's still there. He still says this kid got a D in Spanish to honors. And then down the road, yeah, but he got an A in a regular Spanish. But nobody's leaking about that because there's a fat D, like a D stands out on your transcript. Um, and of course, I had to explain this to my mom, and she was like, wow, you're dumber than I thought. That's crazy, right? So she, now she has to drive me every day for a month to this random high school. I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, what have I done? The only good thing that came out of it, though, was in that class, that class was filled with people that actually, either actually failed Spanish or that, like, had never taken Spanish to before. They're taking it for the first time. And so in that class, people were like, dang, you're, like, fluent. That's crazy. I'm like... Un poco, un poco. Yo hablo un poco espanol. It's crazy. And so that was the one good thing that came out of it. And in this story, I can look back now and like, I can laugh at the ridiculousness of like, wow, I can't believe you did that. Basically, to summarize what happened, I ended up blindly following some offhand advice from one of my peers 
and took a huge, potentially disastrous risk on my academic career. I mean, imagine the potential like, consequences had I not been able to retake that class. If anything had gone differently, now I just failed the class. And the explanation is more ridiculous than me actually failing the class on purpose. And again, while I can laugh about it now, um, I, I try to put myself back in that same mental and emotional situation as I was preparing for the sermon. Um, and again, I'm putting myself back to when I was 16 years old, um, and the world that I would have best described as that situation was, I was just desperate. I was desperate. I was like, I can't get an A in this class, but I need to save this grade. What can I do? And it really felt like the walls. And again, if you're 16, if you remember when you're in high school and college, when like your GPA was the most important thing in your life for a lot of us, where it's like, I just need to get a grade, that good grade. My friends and I had a saying that we sarcastically but kind of seriously said in high school, and it was, pain is temporary, GPA is forever. Like, that little number will follow you for the rest of your life. Like, you gotta do what you gotta do to get that grade. And again, as a student, you can really kind of relate to that, that situation, that feeling, where I need to get this grade, I need to kill it, but I'm looking at the future and nothing, I don't see how this gets better. And in that moment, you're just clawing and craving for anything that can give you the light at the end of the tunnel. Anything that can make it say, hey, the situation, it's going to get better. There is a way out. And in that desperation, I ended up doing something rather foolish. But really, that's not something that's specific to students. I would argue that for a lot of us, it's just human nature. When you get to a point in your life and you say, I'm not where I thought I'd be. As a student, it can be, you know, it's December, you have maybe two weeks left into your final. You could sit there thinking, I'm not where I thought I'd be by this point in the semester. But in the grand scheme of things, you can say that for any aspect of your life. I'm not where I thought I'd be at this point in my life. By the time I thought I'd be 40 or 30, I thought I'd be here, but I'm not. I'm not where I thought I'd be financially. I'm not where I thought I'd be uh, as a parent or in my relationship in this stage of your life. And if, it, and if it gets to you enough, it can really trap you in this really, really dark place where you're like, I thought things would be different at this point. And you enter this place um, of despair and darkness. Because I think it's just human nature that especially when you're in a dark place or where you're not where you thought you'd be, we naturally seek out any indication that there is a light at the end of this tunnel. I need to know that it gets better. I need to know that what I'm in right now is actually a tunnel and there's a hole at the end and it's not a cave where it doesn't get better. And that feeling, that tendency that we have as humans is often described in the English language as hope. I need hope. I need to know that this dark time will pass, that things will get better. And the word hope in English is often used synonymously with the idea of optimism, being positive, um, wishful thinking mixed with pos positivity and probability. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Looking at the forecast, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I get the grades that I want. I hope someone asks me to banquet. I hope I get that job. That feeling of hope is I hope and I want and I wish that in the future something better will happen. Something will improve the quality of my life down the road. And a lot of that understanding of hope, at least as we commonly use it, revolves around the idea of being able to look at our situation, the current situation that I'm in, at my life, at my school, at my grades, at my job, and being able to see, I can see how this gets better. I can see how down the road there will be an improvement in my life. Or looking at a present situation and being able to potentially predict something good that will come in the future. That's basically our understanding of hope. And the Hebrew word, the Advent word that we're going to talk about in the series of biblical hope is the word yakal or kava, which is almost always used in the Bible to describe an expectation 
of a coming good, an expectation of a coming good. And up until that point in the definition, it's pretty similar to our common English understanding of hope. I'm hoping and I'm expecting something good to come down the road in the future. But it's the second half of this biblical definition that causes a little bit of a discrepancy. So, yakal or kaval, which almost always means an expectation of a coming good based on the person and promises of God. Again, the first half of that definition is fairly similar to most of our understanding of hope, an expectation that something good will come down the road in my life, an, anticip an anticipation of something better. But it's the second half of that definition that really distinguishes biblical hope, yakal and kava, versus our understanding of, I hope things get better. And it's that biblical hope is based on the person and the promises of God, or the character and the credibility of Jesus. Again, hope as we commonly understand it, it's pretty much just based on optimism, right? If you consider yourself to be an optimistic person, you can always find hope in a situation. Yeah, I didn't get the job, but I think something good will happen down the road. Yeah, like I don't have the grades that I wanted, but I mean, I feel like it can get better. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, this thing didn't happen in my life. I'm not where I want it financially, but ah, I've still got more time. I can see it getting better. I'm going to choose, despite the circumstances, to believe that things will get better. And in that definition, the foundation of your hope, as we usually use it in English, is the object of your hope is in probability or circumstance or someone else's ability. And in those circumstances, the object of your hope is based on the situation that you're in. Yet biblical hope distinguishes itself in that it's always based on the promises and the character of Jesus. So basically the main differentiating factor between hope as we understand it and yakal or kava or biblical hope is that it's a more specific version of hope. And when people in the Bible use the word kava or hope, they're almost always describing it as I'm hoping in God in the promises of God and the character of God despite the circumstances that I am in. And again, the, the concept of hope is one that is, I think, universal to humanity. Everyone craves and needs hope. We naturally seek and crave hope when we're in a bad place. It's built in the very fabric of our lives. We need to know, I would argue, in a lot of ways, as human beings, just to get us through the day, just to get us through life, we need to know that life is going to get better. I need to know that this relationship that I'm having problems with is gonna get better. Otherwise, what is the point? I need to know that my business is gonna see better days. Otherwise, it's just too hard for me to, to cope with. I need to know that one day the, the hardships that I'm suffering, the bad times I'm in, are going to end. Otherwise, I'm gonna sink into this endless dark hole. I need to know that it's gonna get better. And it's at the point where a severe lack of hope, completely an absence of hope in your life, has been labeled in our day and age as a mental illness. I mean, that's essentially what the crux of depression is. When you're in a state where I cannot see how life will get better. I absolutely am living in a constant state of hopelessness and despair. I cannot see how the future can be better. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It feels like I'm in a cave. And that's the essence of humanity. We desire, we desperately need this idea of hope just to get us through our lives. Otherwise, the question remains, what is the point? If it doesn't get better, if it's not gonna improve, if it's not gonna work down the road, what is the point of staying in this or in this situation? But I think something that ironically helps us better understand the concept of hope is exploring what's on the other side of hope. Hope is good, we understand what hope is. Hope is a, a longing for something good, for better days, but the opposite of hope, or what happens when you had hope for something and it doesn't come through, and I think at least in the word uh, that we would use in the English language to describe the opposite of hope is the, the idea of disappointment. You know what, I had hoped it wouldn't rain, but it did. I had hoped 
I would get the grades that I wanted, but, but I didn't. And unfortunately, disappointed me, but I didn't get the job, or I didn't get to the place where I wanted to be. I had hoped that this would happen. I had hoped things would work out. I had hoped that better future would come, but it didn't. And so now I'm in a state of disappointment. And just instinctually, when we get to things, when the things that we had hoped for don't come, don't come to fruition, the natural place we find ourselves in is a place of disappointment. And at worst, at extreme cases, we find ourselves spiraling into despair. It didn't happen. I really banked on it. I needed it to happen, but it didn't. And now I'm in a state of despair. And the feeling of disappointment is one that most of, most of us in this room have probably experienced at some point in our lives. Again, it's kind of a natural part of being a human being. You hoped some things would happen, things don't work out, you're sad. You hoped, you expected, you waited on these things, but for whatever reason, for X, Y, and Z, it didn't work out, the plans you had didn't come to fruition, and now you're in a state of disappointment. A good way to kind of gauge this is, if any of you have made New Year's resolutions um, 12 months ago, this is a pretty good chance to look back on the changes you said you were going to make this year and then be disappointed. I don't know how many of you guys do this. I know like making New Year's resolutions have kind of fallen off um, trendy these days. But if any of you have made New Year's resolutions, um, I know I made a few. This is a pretty good chance to look back and be like, all right, this year is pretty much over. Were you able to make the change that you had hoped you would make in 2021? And for me, it's a resounding no. At this point of the year, um, if you asked me at the end of 2021, right, or uh, at the end of 2021, if you asked me last year, what do you hope will have happened? Like, what are your hopes for this upcoming year? And if you asked me a year ago, um, I would have told you at the beginning of the year, you know what, I feel like by the end of 2021, I feel like this whole COVID thing is going to be over. But I feel like, you know what, we'll have wrapped it up. It'll be a fun story we tell. But instead, I feel like I'm living this weird, like, I'm just reliving Greek one. I'm just relearning the Greek alphabet with everyone else. We're going through all of the letters. If you had asked me at the beginning of the year, what would you have hoped to happen at the end of this year? I would have hoped, I would have told you, I would have hoped I would have gotten a little bit more out of my gym membership. But I didn't. And unfortunately, I'm just supporting local businesses at this point. But whatever the source of your disappointment is, I think it's important to, nigger, uh, to figure out that whatever the source of your disappointment may be, disappointment serves a vital role in the way we view hope. Because very naturally, this is what disappointment does. Disappointment will shine a spotlight on whatever it is you had hoped in. And I think at this point, it's important to make a distinction between there are things that we hope for, and, a result, and as a result of what we hope for, there are things we hope in. For instance, I had hoped... I had hoped that I would have gotten more out of my gym membership and I would have gone to the gym more often this past year. But what I was really hoping in was in my work ethic, was in my sense of discipline, was in my sense of motivation. That's what that hope was based off of. I had hoped the result would have been me going to the gym more often. But what I was hoping in, the object of my hope, was my work ethic and my motivation and my discipline. And unfortunately, that didn't work out. When I, when I hoped that COVID would be over at this point, what I had hoped in, honestly, was nothing more than like wishful thinking. Honestly, I don't even know what I based that off of. I just like, I don't know what the stats, what this, I just really wanted to not be like that anymore. And again, what that brings to light is a lot of times when you, when you cut the tape and you look at, at the facts of what is it that you're really hoping in, you realize that a lot of times we have all these hopes. We, have, we hope for this, we hope for that, we hope that this will happen. But when you look at the details of, okay, well, what are you basing that hope on? A lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, it's based just off of wishful thinking, desires, what makes us feel better, and not necessarily anything concrete. Why are you hoping in that? I just, I just want it to happen. What's going to make it happen? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. 
my dreams and my desires and me wishing. And disappointment is an important tool that helps us assess the quality of our hope and forces us to ask this question. Is what I'm hoping for based on something or someone worth hoping in? Is what I'm hoping for based on someone or something that's worth hoping in? And at this point, some of you may have started connecting the dots between what I just said about biblical hope and disappointment. And the question may have arose for some of you. Well, yeah, I get what you're going to say now. You're going to say, and obviously, if you hope in Jesus, you will never be disappointed. Well, what if I have been? What if I am? And that question is something that Jesus actually tackles in the New Testament. And I think it's a fair question to ask. And luckily for us, the Gospel of Luke, which is the third chapter, or third book in the Bible, and the third uh, three of four biographies of Jesus' life, uh, shares a story of how Jesus interacts with a group of people that were disappointed in him, that had hoped in Jesus, but had lost hope in him. So the Gospel of Luke is one of four books in the Bible that are essentially um, a biography of Jesus' life. And Luke was a third party, a Gentile, that, that compilated a bunch of stories and interviews to create what we now know as the Gospel of Luke. And the the book of Luke is one that, especially during this time, during Christmas season, a lot of people will read because the first two chapters of Luke um, share a lot of details about the birth and, and, the, and the life of Jesus, right? This is the birth of John the Baptist, and Jesus, and the shepherds. And it's one that a lot of times around Christmas people will read to remind ourselves, oh, this, is, this was the story of Jesus. But it's interesting that the book of Luke starts with the birth of Jesus and the idea of hope, our living hope and our Savior being born and coming to earth. And if you go fast forward to the very last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24, you find a story where Jesus interacts with someone, a group of people that have essentially lost hope in him. Where the beginning of the book talks about how this, the entrance of hope has come, living hope, hope embodied in a person. God has come to save the world. It's Jesus, hip hip hooray. Yet at the very end of the book, Luke chapter 24, the second to last story, talks about a story of Jesus interacting with people that had essentially, we had hoped Jesus would be this kind of guy, but he wasn't. And we get to hear Jesus' response to this kind of reaction. And it's a story that's most commonly known as the road to Emmaus, or Jesus walking to Emmaus. Um, and it follows, um, the story takes place the day of Jesus' resurrection. So to set the stage, Jesus has just died in Jerusalem. He's been crucified, and people are in shock. It's the biggest thing that's happened. Everyone is talking about it, especially if you were a follower of Jesus. If you were a follower of Jesus and you just saw Jesus die, your Lord, your Messiah, this great prophet who was supposed to be this king, it's destroyed by the very people you thought he was going to overthrow, it kind of throws you for a loop and you, leaves you questioning a lot of things about your life. I didn't think that's how the story would end, but he's dead now, and now I don't know what to do. I need some time to rethink. And again, at this point, for most of us, if you grew up in the church, you know how the story ends. Jesus resurrected, and it's all good, and it's the most amazing thing ever. But at this point in the story, no one knows that that's happened. No one knows that he's come back to life. No one knows that he was planning on doing that. Um, except for who, some people earlier in the day well, where Jesus showed himself to. So someone went to the cave, to the grave where Jesus was at, and he showed himself. And at this point in the story, those are the only people that know about Jesus' resurrection. And there are these two disciples of Jesus walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about a seven, eight-mile journey. And as they're walking, they're discussing what has just happened. Okay, these are two people that have followed Jesus, spent a significant portion of their time, maybe resources and energy, trying to learn to, to emotionally and spiritually follow this guy, but also physically walk with Jesus around, listen to his uh, sermons, and watch his miracles. And now they're, they're trying to come to terms with what has just happened, right? I thought this guy was Messiah, but I guess he's not. And as he's walking, as they're walking together, Jesus shows up, 
and he, and he just starts walking with them. And he asks this question in Luke chapter 24, verse 17. What are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stop short, sadness written across their faces. And at this point, they don't recognize it's Jesus. But Jesus is asking these two disciples, what, what are you discussing so intently? Then one of them said, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that have happened here in the last few days. Jesus responds in a kind of cheeky manner, what things? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And this is the important statement that shows their disappointment in Jesus. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. The implication of that, st of that statement is, you know, we hoped he was our guy. We hoped he was the king, the Messiah that we had been waiting for to throw off Roman oppression and take us by the hand and we'd be co-rulers of this world and God's chosen people would be on top once again. Hippie parade, this oppression would come to an end. And that's what we hoped, but he's dead now, so none of that matters. Right? And the disappointment is palpable on their faces. Again, these, were, these weren't just bystanders. These were people that had followed Jesus, spent significant time and resources following him, and they're expressing their disappointment, and unbeknownst to them, to Jesus himself. You know, I thought he was our guy. And he did a lot of cool things, sure, but I guess we were wrong. We hoped in Jesus, but unfortunately, it didn't come to pass. And to this, Jesus responds. And again, uh, God's solution is from. And in this moment where they, they talk about how they were disappointed, how God was supposed to make everything better, they look Jesus in the eyes and say, I guess we were wrong. And he wasn't someone worth putting our trust in because clearly he let us down. That's the implication of the sentence. We thought he was this, but I guess he wasn't. We were wrong. Somewhere along the road, we missed something or he said something. Or he, either he lied or we missed something. I don't know. But regardless, he probably wasn't the guy we were looking for. And this is Jesus' response to their disappointment. When, Jesus, when they look at Jesus in the eyes and say, we were wrong in hoping in Jesus, he says this in a fairly blunt manner in verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is Jesus' Jesus' response to their disappointment, to their lack of hope. And he basically says, I don't think you understand correctly what this guy was talking about. Again, they have no idea who Jesus is. And Jesus proceeds to take them through the entirety of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures from beginning to end and say, look, let's follow this path. Let's follow the cookie crumbs and see who this guy was supposed to be. Let's check the tape. Read the prophecies, read all the things, read the covenants, read the details, and he shows them, and he guides them along this Bible study that basically shows them, look, everything went according to plan. This was supposed to happen. You didn't hope in the wrong person. You just had a wrong, an incorrect understanding of what you thought was supposed to happen. And in summary, what Jesus reminds them of this, he sheds some more light on their disappointment. What he says is, when you break down the Old Testament, the narrative is essentially this. The story of the Old Testament is 
God makes a promise to his people. God makes a promise to Israel and says, I will be your people and you will be my God. Let's make this relationship, let's make this covenant to use biblical language. And throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, you see Israel fail again and again and again to hold up their end of the promise, to hold up being faithful to God. They constantly run away from God and go to idols and do all these crazy things throughout this entire story. And at the end, towards the end, there are these prophecies of, you know what, it seems like Israel won't be able to fulfill their end of the bargain. They won't be able to keep their promise. They won't be able to keep this relationship. So what God promises throughout the Old Testament is this. I'm going to send someone. Someone will come that will rescue Israel and hold up their end of the bargain for them. I'm not going to find them. I'm not going to take it out on them. I'm just going to do what they said they would do on their behalf. And Jesus shows them that actually happened. And that person, that representative of the Godhead, was supposed to come on Israel's behalf and suffer on Israel's behalf. You see, nothing was wrong. This is going all according to plan. And in this summary, Jesus, in his gracious and gentle, although fairly blunt way in this scenario, he reminds them and he assures them, look, I get that you're disappointed. I get that you hoped that I would be this person, but I'm not. But the reality of, of that is this. I'm here to remind you, you can still have hope in me. And the Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus reassuring his followers and his disciples, look, the story is not over. I'm still someone that you can consistently put your hope in, in my character, in my promises, and in my credibility. Because everything that I said would happen has come to pass. And in me coming to life after this resurrection, I have fulfilled everything that is required to be your living hope. And in this moment, he reminds them that, look, what you guys had created wasn't hope in me. You had created your own version of me. They had created this own characterized version of what they thought Jesus should be, this mighty warrior king that campaigned against Rome and defeated them. But unfortunately, Jesus tells them, I never said I would do that. You said I would do that. I didn't say I would do that. And he, he reminds them in his own gentle way, look, every promise I've made, I've kept, and I'm going to continue to keep that's why I'm here talking with you guys today. And for anyone now that may be struggling with disappointment, especially in Jesus, maybe you grew up in church and you had these promises and ideas, maybe it was a pastor or a Sabbath school teacher or an adult at your church that told you something about Jesus, and then you grew up and you're like, that's not my experience with Jesus, and you realize, I can't have hope in this guy. He's not who I thought he would be. I gently want to ask you um, to step back and potentially ask yourself the question, what exactly was it that you were hoping Jesus would do for you or do in your life? What exactly did you think Jesus said he would be? And the question is, is that something Jesus actually promised that he would do? And I gently ask that question because for a lot of us, I would argue, and these two disciples had that same issue where they thought Jesus was supposed to be like this, but unfortunately, Jesus never said he was going to do any of those things, and they had created this caricature of Jesus himself. And for anyone listening that maybe are struggling with I don't have hope in Jesus, or I can't believe in this Jesus guy because of a tragedy that I've experienced in my life, a very disappointing in my moment where maybe it caused you to lose hope in Jesus, where this really bad thing happened to me, and because of that, I no longer can have faith or hope or trust in this Jesus character. I can't say that Jesus ordained or that God ordained that tragedy happened, that Jesus ordained that tragedy to happen in your life, or that God wanted that terrible thing to happen in your life. I can't say that. What I can say that is that part of the package deal of having hope in the person and the promises of Jesus is that he assures us that when we are going through that suffering, through that dark place, through, through the pain and the scars and the, and the trauma that we might have, that if we bring him our suffering and our doubt 
and our pain and our scars, he'll take them as he did with Elijah in his lowest moments, as he did with these two disciples on the walk to Emmaus. He'll walk with them, field your questions, and give, and if you give him your suffering and pain, he'll take it and through his character, use it to transform you into a person with a deeper understanding of his love. He may not say, look, that wasn't my plan for you. I didn't want for, these, for those terrible things to happen to you. But if you have hope in me, in my character and in my promises, and you give me that pain and that suffering, I can work with you and give you a deeper understanding of my love and use it to transform your life. The last distinction I want to make about biblical hope and how it differs from our, our more common understanding is that biblical hope it's more than just a feeling, and it's more than just a perspective that we have. Biblical hope, according to um, uh, Biblical Dictionary, uh, boils down to really these three main ideas. One, an expectation of future. An expectation of future good, which kind of falls in line with our English understanding of hope. Two, trusting in God, which I feel like for most of us, I, that makes sense. If biblical hope, by definition, is being able to hope for a better future because of the character of God, it's necessary that that's one of the aspects of biblical hope. So ex expectation of the future, Trust in God. And the third is what I think really distinguishes it from just regular hope and for just a feeling or a perspective. The third aspect of biblical hope is that it necessarily requires the patience of waiting. And it's really that last aspect that makes it more of a muscle or a virtue or a conscious decision that we make in our lives rather than just a feeling or a perspective that we have. And it's why in the Old Testament, the prophets were able to live in a time when there was literally no reason for them to have any source of hope. When the world was falling around, falling apart around them, being, their leadership was corrupt, foreign nations were coming to, distract, to destroy them and take them into exile, their children, their future generations were going to be born as refugees in a different country, their temple, their city was destroyed. They looked around and there was no reason for them to have any source of hope. You could be as optimistic as possible, but when you see your temple and the walls burn, what are you supposed to say? What good can possibly come out of this? And in that moment, the prophet Elijah says, at this moment, the Lord is hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah, or hope, or wait for him. Despite the circumstances in my life, biblical hope reminds me that yes, there's an expectation of a better hope because I trust in Jesus, but the third aspect of that is then I must then be patient and wait. And that's arguably the most difficult part of exercising this. And that's why the psalmist was able to say in, in his that despite his circumstances, and now, O oh Lord, what else can I kavah for? What else can I hope for? What else can I long for? What else can I wait for? And now, O oh Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yakal. Two words in Hebrew that both mean this idea of hope and waiting and ex expectation. God, what else can I hope for? I look at my surroundings and there's nothing palpable in my surroundings in my life to give me a sense of hope. You are the only consistent hope I have in my life. And for the psalmist, the only thing worth placing his hope in was that the only thing that was steadfast enough, that was reliable enough, that was consistent enough for him to place his hope in was in the character and the promises of God. So as a part of our series, we've been including a series of kind of questions that you can ask yourself throughout the week to make this concept, to make this word, kaval or yakal, a little bit more relevant in your lives throughout this week. And the first question is this. Throughout this week, and we'll put this on our Instagram throughout the week, but what are you hopeful for in this coming year? Again, you know, it's technically the end of the year. We've got about three weeks left. But in this coming year, what are you hopeful for? And more importantly is the follow-up question, what is that hope based off of? Obviously, we have a lot of things that we want to go well in our lives, a lot of things where we can look into the future and say, I want things to get better, but what is that hope based off of, and what is that hope placed in? 
And the third is this. How can I exercise this patience, uh, this patience of waiting? And if you have kids, you know that patience isn't something that just naturally people acquire. Kids by nature have to be taught how to be patient. And people, we want things now more than ever, and everything is faster and kind of on demand. And by nature, most of us are fairly impatient. And, and waiting doesn't come very easily for most of us. Yet a vital aspect of biblical hope is this idea of waiting on God to fulfill his promises and being assured of his character and in his promise. And similarly to working out a muscle, biblical hope is a decision. It's a virtue that we have to cultivate to hone and hone and exercise so that we can continue to look back on our past and on God's faithfulness to us in our history in order to fuel us for the present and to look forward to a future with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you again for these promises and this assurance that you've given us through this, this concept of hope throughout the Bible, Father, Lord. And it's interesting that it's really intrinsic in all of us, Father, that, that we as humans, we crave and we need and we desire this concept of hope, this, this assurance that things will get better, that things must get better, that down the road there is there's reason to rejoice and to hope, Father. And you've really put that into all of our hearts, Father. And yet we look around and there's so many reasons for us to lose hope in our lives, in our circumstances, Lord. The probability and the statistics tell us that maybe there isn't a reason for hope. Maybe things might not get better when you look around in our circumstances, Father. But Lord, you, you give us the assurance and the promise that there are things in our lives that we can place our hope in that won't ever fail us, Father. And things in our life that are consistent and constant and never failing, that have a track record of always coming through and fulfilling their promises to us, Father. So we thank you that you are the God that comes to our aid in those moments, Lord. That when we feel hopeless, you walk by our side and you feel our questions and you gently nudge us as to why your character is one that cannot fail and why your promises are ones that you always keep, Lord. We thank you for that assurance and I ask that throughout this week, Lord, and whatever comes in our way, whatever disappointments may come into our lives, Father, you help us to check the tape and really realize that there are few things in our life that are truly worth putting our hope in, Father, and that's your character and your promise, Father. I ask you put that reminder in our hearts throughout this week as we walk with you. I praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.